You know, as we open up this morning in Acts chapter 20, uh, starting at verse 26, we're really dropping down right in the middle of a message that the Apostle Paul was giving to some elders or some leaders of the Christian community in Ephesus. So let me just give you a very brief recap of where we're at and set the stage for this, because I'll be honest with you, this this is a hard-hitting, direct, no-hold-barred message. You know, listen, sometimes you'll come to church and the text that we're considering, man, it's really light and just filled with life and just, man, just beautiful and cheerful and blessed. And other times, it's sort of a stern warning, isn't it? Well, this morning is one of those stern warning texts, and we want to pay close attention to it. So just remember for yourself, the speaker is Paul the Apostle. He's on the last part of his third great missionary tour. He's headed towards Jerusalem. This was a man who who had his life utterly transformed by Jesus Christ. And since that time, since that dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's been living his life to make disciples of all the nations. That's the speaker. Then you have the listeners. The listeners were the leaders of the Christian community in Ephesus. Paul spent more than two years with these people, and they knew him, and he knew them, and they loved each other deeply. And then there's the atmosphere. You know, again, I'm reminding you, this is the middle of Paul's message to these Ephesian leaders. The atmosphere is tense, especially because we're starting at verse 26, and at verse 25, Paul had just told them that this would probably be the last time that they ever saw him face to face. Now think of what that means. You know, you and I say that and we say, well, it's the last time I may ever see you. But we know this. We know you could pick up the phone and call that person, right? We know you could go online and do a Skype chat with them. We know you could hear their voice. You could have contact. No, if Paul says to the Ephesian leaders, you'll never see my face again, it also means you'll never hear my voice. We'll never have any other interaction because that's just how it was in the ancient world. And at the end of it all, Paul knew that trouble was ahead. He knew trouble was ahead For himself, the Holy Spirit had been telling him every stop along the way that trouble was awaiting him on this trip to Jerusalem. He knew that. But Paul also knew, as we're going to find out in this text, that trouble was ahead for these Christians from Ephesus. And he warns them about it. So let's look at it here. Verse 26, Acts chapter 20. Paul says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, please understand, whenever the Bible uses a word like therefore, just like in any other sort of literature, it's referring to what went before. And don't forget what Paul said in verse 25. He says this, verse 25, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. This is it. We're not going to see each other ever again. I'm never going to have the chance to speak to you even one more time. Therefore, because of that, and think about all the depth of that word. Think of how much was wrapped up in that one simple word. It has the sense of because I probably won't ever see you again. Because I love you so much. Because I've invested so much in you, both as a congregation, as in it leaders. Because you have so much of my heart and my life among you all. You need to know this. And what do they need to know? Look at it right there in verse 26. 
I testify that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. You know, it's staggering. He has their attention. These men are on the edge of their seats, although they were probably standing as they heard Paul speak. But they're just at the the, the edge of anticipation. Therefore, what are you going to tell us, Paul? You just dropped a bomb and told us you were going to leave. Now what? And Paul, it's as if he raises his hand in a courtroom and he solemnly swears. Did you see that in verse 26? He says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. As if he was giving witness in a court of law, Paul declared that his heart was clear, that he could leave these Christians with a clear conscience, knowing that he had not shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of God's word. I'm going to talk about that whole counsel of God's word thing in just a minute. But before we do, let me just remind you again of the blessed importance of a clear conscience. Isn't it wonderful that Paul could stand up before these men and say, my conscience is clear. Oh, I wasn't perfect among you. I I sinned. I made mistakes. I did that. We all know this. But listen, I can tell you that my conscience is clear. I did what God called me to do. And I didn't hold back on anything that God told me to do. Listen, friends, you want to be able, in the interactions of your life, be able to have a clear conscience. And, And there are sins that maybe you're tempted to commit. Let me tell you, one of the many reasons why you should not commit those sins is because you want to have a clear conscience in your life. You, you want to be able to look at that person in the mirror and look at that man or that woman that faces you back in the mirror and say, I know that person has a clear conscience. And that's just one reason. It's not the only reason not to sin. But Paul knew the value of having a clear conscience. Now, Why was his conscience clear? Because of what he knew that he did among them. Look at it there in verse 27. He said that I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul could leave them with a clear conscience because he knew that he taught them the whole counsel of God. Now, Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. You don't have to turn there, but let me just tell you what it says. Acts 19, verses 9 and 10 tells us that Paul spent more than two years in Ephesus teaching daily in the school of Tyrannus. They're sort of a, the Apostle Paul Bible College, something like that. And he taught them day in and day out. Daily would have meant six days a week. He would have taken the Sabbath off. And in that culture, you didn't have much vacation time. So six days a week, probably for three or four hours a day, in the middle of the day, Paul taught in this rented school hall, the uh, school of Tyrannus, and he taught them for two years. Now, when you add up the hours, I just did a little calculating, you know, on a little calculator I have. Friends, that's hundreds of hours of teaching. That's well more than 1,500 hours of teaching that Paul did among the Ephesians. Probably much more than that. Day in and day out. Now, what would he possibly have to teach him for more than 1,500 hours? I'll tell you what Paul did, since he tells us that he taught them the whole counsel of God's word. And look, I, I know I'm presuming a little bit here. Would you just grant me this presumption? I believe that Paul taught them verse by verse through books of the Bible, don't you? Don't you think he went through the, the Old Testament, through the, the Hebrew Scriptures, and he said, let's go through Genesis and see what it says and how it teaches us about Jesus. Let's go through Exodus and do the same. And he just walked them through. Listen, 1,500 hours is a lot of time to preach, is it not? 
And all that time, Paul would teach them. And since he taught them the whole counsel of God's word, again, I know I'm presuming just a little bit, but I don't know what Paul would have taught them if he didn't teach them the Hebrew scriptures. I don't know what Paul would have taught them if he didn't bring before them the life of Jesus as it was beginning to be recorded even at that time. I don't know what he wouldn't have taught them if he wouldn't have taught them about life and doctrine, both from the Hebrew scriptures and from what God was producing right then. He had plenty of time to take them verse by verse through the books of the Hebrew scriptures, and I'm sure that he did. Now listen, I rejoice that today there is more verse by verse what we sometimes call expository Bible teaching. I'm happy that there's more of that in the church today than there was 20 years ago, and I really believe that there is. But can I just say, in my view, in my opinion, and I would hope that the Apostle Paul would agree with us here this morning, I believe that there should be more and more who will present the whole counsel of God. Paul warned us in one of his letters that in the last days, people would not endure sound doctrine, but rather they would look to teachers who would tell them what they wanted to hear. They would look for teachers who would scratch their itching ears. That happens, doesn't it? Aren't there congregations who say, scratch my itching ears, teacher. Come, I've got a itch right here. Won't you come and scratch it? And there's far too many preachers who are willing to do that. The sad truth is that there's many preachers today who simply use a Bible text. They take a Bible verse and they use it as a launching pad. And then they just basically go off and say whatever they want to say. And usually it's what people want to hear. Oh, other people will throw in a a few Bible quotations to illustrate this point or a few stories or this or that. But listen, listen, the real calling of a preacher is to simply let the Bible speak for itself and to declare its own power. If there's anything I'm utterly convinced of, it's that the power is in the word of God. It's not in the preacher. The preacher's job is just to deliver the word of God. And if I can get heavy, look, it's a heavy passage, all right? If I can get heavy here just for a moment, if we take Paul's testimony at full strength, then we would have to say that those preachers who do not declare the whole counsel of God, preachers who deliberately withhold the whole counsel of God's word, they have it, but they don't teach it. They are guilty of the blood of all men. Is that not true? The preacher who preaches what his audience wants to hear and not the whole counsel of God, he hurts his audience, but he also hurts himself because he cannot say what Paul said, I am clear of the blood of all men. Listen, we should also demand that we're taught the whole counsel of God's word, not just interesting topics, not just what we want to hear, not just what the things that will interest or entertain people, but what God says to his people as a whole. Well, after that, Paul goes on in verse 28, you'll notice, he gives another therefore. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, did you notice what he did with his first therefore? His first, therefore, pointed back to him. Therefore, I know that I conducted myself well among you. I delivered you the goods. Now, his second, therefore, in verse 28, his second, therefore, is about what they should do. And specifically, what they should do about le- as leaders of God's people. In other words, I don't think Paul would have said verse 28 to the congregation in Ephesus. 
But he did say it to the leaders of the Ephesian church. And look at what he says in verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. First, therefore, about what Paul did. Second, therefore, about what these leaders among the Christians in Ephesus must do. And what's the first thing that they must do? You saw it right there in verse 28. Number one, they need to take heed to yourselves. See what Paul's saying to a bunch of pastors, essentially? To these men who I believe they were the pastors of the different home congregations scattered all throughout Ephesus and the region around. Paul got together with these men and he looked at these individual house church pastors and he said, first of all, take heed to yourself. It's as if he said this, pay attention to your own life. You have a high standard to fulfill. Now, the standard isn't perfection, but it's nevertheless high. You won't fulfill that high standard by without paying attention to it. So take heed to yourselves. I wish, I wish that I was speaking to a whole bunch of pastors and leaders right now. I'd look at them and I'd say, listen, pastor, take heed to your own life. Take heed. You're not going to live the right kind of life as a pastor, as a leader among God's people. You're not going to live that life by accident. You've got to live it by taking heed. If you don't put some effort, if you put, don't put some energy, some attention towards living that kind of life, it's not going to happen. So pastor, leader, take heed. To yourself, right? But that's not all he says. Look at what he says next in verse 28. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. And you know what a flock is, right? A flock describes a bunch of sheep. And so here he's referring to the people of God collectively as a flock of sheep, which is a very common metaphor, right? It's a metaphor used in the Old Testament. It's a metaphor used by Jesus. Now it's a metaphor used here by Paul. It's a common metaphor. The people of God are like a flock of sheep. And he's telling these pastors, he's telling these leaders, you pay attention not only to yourself, but you pay attention also to the flock. Do it because, did you see it there in verse 28? The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I almost want to give a challenge, you know, in speaking to pastors. And by the way, there are times when I do have the opportunity to speak to pastors and leaders from this very text. And I love doing it because it's a challenge to myself and it's a challenge to them. Hey, pastor, you think that the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer, right? You, you think that your position is something that the Holy Spirit has done in your life, not just the product of your own ambition. I hope it's not just the product of your ambition. But you believe that the Holy Spirit has done this. Yes, I believe it. Well, then listen, take heed to yourself and take heed to the flock that God has given you. That's your responsibility. Now, he amplifies that thought going on in verse 28 where he says to shepherd the church of God, right? Flock has the idea of sheep. Shepherd the church of God continues that thought. He's telling them to be pastors. Now, I don't mean to insult anybody here, but I take it that there's probably a few people who don't know this. The word pastor is just the word for shepherd. The ancient Greek word pastor and shepherd, they're basically the same word. A pastor is a shepherd. A shepherd is a pastor. And this is what he's telling them to do. 
Do the job of a pastor. Shepherd the church of God. Serve your house congregations as faithful pastors as you are there organized in Ephesus and the region around them. Now, there's two great ideas. Actually, there's three, but I'm only going to talk about two right now. There's two great ideas connected with this idea of shepherding or being a pastor. The first great idea is feeding. Right? That's what a shepherd needs to do. He needs to feed his flock. Look, if you don't feed the sheep, nothing else much happens, right? You can brush their wool all day long, but if you don't feed them, they're going to die, okay? So you've got to feed the sheep. And that's part of what we want to do here, right? Feed the sheep. Bring them the food of the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We want to feed God's people. And I hope you know what it's like to have your soul fed by the word of God. It's sort of a unique thing, isn't it? I mean, you're not actually physically eating. You'll do that when you go out to lunch afterwards. But but you're being nourished. You're being fed. Nevertheless, that's a good thing. That's what God wants to do. But the pastor's job is not only to feed. It's also to lead. That's what shepherds do. Shepherds lead the flock. Well, we'll go over to this pasture. We'll go over to this stream. We'll go over to this waiting place. We'll go over to this place. The shepherd leads. The shepherd feeds. That's what Paul was telling them to do. Shepherd the church of God. They say, okay, Paul, lighten up. You seem to be so heavy about this all. Why are you cracking the whip on us, Paul? Well, I'll tell you why. Look at the last phrase of verse 28. The last phrase, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you understand what that means? Pastor, you should take such good care of the flock of God. Take care of God's people. Because they don't belong to you, but Jesus Christ purchased them, and he purchased them at the price of his own blood. That's really remarkable, isn't it? You see, you have to do it, Pastor, because the church doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. He purchased it. You didn't purchase it, Pastor. But Jesus purchased it with his own blood. You know, any responsible person is going to take more care of something if it doesn't belong to them, right? If you borrow something. And foremost in my mind should be, this congregation belongs to Jesus Christ. i got to take care of it because it belongs to Him. He purchased it. That should be a greater motivation for me to take good care of it. I see in this verse really a wonderful balance, don't you? You have this idea that the sheep need to remember that God has appointed shepherds to feed them and lead them. Because that's exactly what he's saying right here. Now, he's speaking to shepherds, so to speak, and not to the flock. But this tells us, as sheep, that God has appointed shepherds to feed us and lead us. But the shepherds need to remember that the flock belongs to Jesus Christ and not to them. I tell you what, if both things get remembered, then the work of God gets done. And remember this especially, the greatness of the price. What did Jesus purchase his people with? His own blood. When you think about the greatness of the price, it it makes it all the more solid. Well, going on, verse 29. For I know this. This verse, I, I picture this in my mind mentally. Paul just keeps rolling hand grenades in the midst of the Ephesian leaders. First, he says, I'm leaving. You're never going to see me anymore. What? Are you kidding me? 
And then he speaks to him very sternly. He says, listen, do this job of shepherding. Shepherd the church of God. Take good care of him. Watch out for him. Do all this. Like, Lighten up a little bit, Paul. And then if not more, look at this little hand grenade he rolls in there. Verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Well, thank you, Mr. Cheerful Paul. It's not like, hey, things will get better and better for you, Ephesians. Oh, boy, you know, it's what he says. I know this, not I think this, not I wonder about this. This was something that Paul knew. What did he know? That after he left, savage wolves would come in there and they would not spare the flock among them. You see, Paul knew this as a pastor. He knew that a pastor didn't only need to feed, although that's very important. He knew that a pastor didn't only need to lead, although that's also important, but a pastor also has to protect. And friends, when the people of God are threatened by false doctrines, by false movements, well, then the pastor has to give godly instruction. He has to give godly guidance. He has to say no to wolves. He has to establish protection, so to speak. And that may differ from time to time, from place to place, but the principle is there. Paul knew that the wolves were coming, and he charged these Ephesian leaders, you protect this flock. Jesus purchased them. You better take care of them, because let me tell you something, those wolves aren't going to hold back. You see what it says at the end of verse 29? Not sparing the flock. They're not going to hold back. What, do you expect the wolf to say, no, I'm not going to eat this sheep. I could, but no, I'm just going to hold back. It's in the nature of the wolf to do it. It's a difficult thing, friends, because... Many pastors don't want to believe that there's dangers from the outside. Many pastors don't want to believe that there are dangerous wolves that may come in from the outside and threaten the flock of God. But here Paul says it's so. Now, if that wasn't a hand grenade enough, Paul gets a bigger one, a mortar round. And look at what he fires into him in the midst of verse 30. Okay, picture this in your mind, will you please? He's speaking to these leaders of the Ephesian church. He's speaking to these men that he knows and he loves and he's worked with closely over three years. And he looks them in the eye here in verse 30 and he says, Also, from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. What? I know that some of you, Paul said to his audience, I know that some of you are going to go sideways. I know that some of you are going to try to divide the flock of God. Some people will do it from the outside. Some of you are going to try and do it from the inside. Now listen, friends, it's also, I should say, it's often easier for pastors to deal with wolves that come from the outside that is obviously false teachings and goofy winds of doctrine. But it can be very difficult to deal with those who rise up from among yourselves. Imagine how those men listening to Paul would have received this. It would have been hard for them to leave. No, Paul, we love you. No, Paul, we're sold out to the Lord. No, Paul, we're others. It would have been just like Jesus' disciples saying, No, Lord, not I. I'll never deny you. But one of them did. And all of them abandoned Jesus at the cross, except for John the disciple. And Paul knew that even among those godly leaders of the Ephesian church that he was addressing, some of them, Some of them would speak perverse things and draw away the disciples after themselves. Speaking perverse things tells us the method. They would twist what was good. That's what perverse is, right? Perverse takes something that's good and it twists it. 
And Paul says, some of you are going to do that. You're going to take the good truth of God's word and you're going to twist it. And then why would they do it? They would do it to draw away the disciples after themselves. Now, that's a hard thing for these men to hear, is it not? Paul's saying, some of you men, you want a following. You want people to follow you. And so you're going to twist the truth to gain a following for yourself. And you're going to be like people who operate from the inside while the savage wolves come from the outside. Now, friends, those are hard words to hear. But Paul delivered them to the Ephesian elders. And he brings it sort of to a conclusion in verse 31 where he says, therefore, watch. Now, this is his third therefore, isn't it? Just like a preacher, he keeps warming up for the conclusion, but never ending there. He says, therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. Listen, men, I have delivered to you something precious. Don't forget, for three years I didn't cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. That's a godly concern, a godly care from Paul. It was a long-term care, was it not? He did it for three years. It was a constant care. He didn't cease doing it. It was a watchful care. He warned them. It was a universal care. He did it for everyone. And then it was a heartfelt care. He did it with tears. But that was Paul's heart. Now, after all that, i got to believe Paul's exhausted in his spirit. His listeners are exhausted in spirit. So he has to bring it to a conclusion. Look at it here, starting at verse 32. He says, so now, brethren... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's almost like this. Paul looks ahead. He sees trouble for himself, right? On his way to Jerusalem, he knows trouble awaits him. He looks ahead and he sees trouble for the Ephesian congregation. Doesn't he see that clear enough? Wolves from the outside. Problems from the inside. He sees that as well. But at the end of it all, he can say, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That's where you could do it. What's going to see you through? What's going to see me through? What's going to see this congregation through? Through whatever difficult times may await for us in the future? I tell you what, God and the word of his grace, that's what's going to do it. And I tell you solemnly, friends, programs can't do it. The spirit of the age can't do it. Slick marketing can't do it. Entertainment can't do it. But God and the word of his grace they can build you up and give you an inheritance in heaven. You see, Paul knew this. He knew that despite all the trouble ahead, that God and the word of his grace was greater than any of the trouble awaiting him. Now, in verse 33, he adds a little more of his own testimony. He says, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He says in verse 34, you yourselves know, and I'm sure he held up his hands when he said this, that these hands have provided my necessities. You guys know this, he says. But then in verse 35, he says something really remarkable. Did you notice that? Listen, in some of your Bibles, some of you have those red letter edition Bibles. Now, by the way, that's just done by the Bible printer. 
It's not like Luke put down a black pen and picked up a red pen when he wrote this. But some of you had those red letter edition Bibles, like the one I have right in front of me is like that. And here these words are in red. It says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Why is that in red? Well, because Paul is quoting the words of Jesus there. Let me just say this. I think it's wonderful that there's a quotation by Jesus here in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 35, that is not found in the Gospels. You won't find it in Matthew. You won't find it in Mark. You won't find it in Luke. You won't find it in John. You won't find any of those because there were things that Jesus said that are not recorded in those Gospels. And I hope that doesn't surprise you or shock you. The Apostle John told us so much. The Apostle John told us in John chapter 21, verse 25, that if somebody were to write down everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did, that there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. So we know that Jesus said and did things, but we know this, that God preserved the things that are necessary for us to hear. Whatever Jesus said or, or did that isn't recorded in the gospel, well, it's not necessary. It might have been interesting, but it's not necessary. I kind of like this. I kind of think in the back of my mind, that God knew that one of the gospel writers wasn't going to encourage this, so he made sure that Luke recorded it. And what's the line say? Friends, it is such a beautiful line. This is a line, one of the lines, not the only thing, one of the lines to live your life by. That simple word, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that? I hope you do. I can't read that line without thinking of the Beatitudes. Remember the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? How do they go? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those who seek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are, blessed are, okay? But tell you, this is better than any of the bad Beatitudes, isn't it? Because the Beatitudes tell you how to be blessed, right? What does this tell you? How to be more blessed. Now, I don't know about you, but if I got a choice between blessed and more blessed, I'll take more blessed. And what does he say? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, friends, I'll be honest with you. It is blessed to receive, isn't it? We receive so much from God. We receive so much from one another. God has a way of just bringing it. I mean, it is a blessing to receive, no doubt about it. But I know, and I think you know in your life, it is even a greater blessing to give. And God imparts blessing to our life when we give on so many levels. Listen, it is true financially. If you ask anybody around you, ask somebody that you know in your life who's a serious giver unto God. Man, they are committed to giving unto God. And ask them if they regret it. Ask them if they think, well, no, it's just not working. I've found that this verse is not true. It's not more blessed to give than to receive. No, you just ask them. And they'll tell you, yes, it's true. It's true financially, but listen, it's true with everything in life. And Paul's just pointing it out. For the trouble that awaits you ahead, you better have this sacrificial mentality that says there's greater blessing in giving than there is in receiving. And as I said before, that is the best beatitude of all. Without a heart of sacrifice, there's not going to be any effective eternal ministry. And when we do it, it should be a glad sacrifice knowing the blessedness of it all. 
Listen, I, I know that sometimes those of us who do ministry, we're pastors or we're leaders or we're just Christian workers in some way. Sometimes we get focused on all we have. Oh, there's such a burden in the ministry. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, there's so much to do. Oh, there were all the stress. Oh, this. And listen, there are seasons when it seems like a burden or when it seems stressful. But listen, I just say, if you don't have the blessing from it, something's wrong. If you don't sense the great blessedness that there is in serving God, there's a short circuit somewhere. Because I'll allow that there are times when it seems to be a great stress or a great difficulty or whatever. But all in all, it is a great blessing. Because it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, he's going to end it here. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely. You can picture this, can't you? And they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. By the way, that falling on his neck thing, that's not like a pro wrestling move. It's just a funny phrase, isn't it? It says the same thing in the parable of the prodigal son, that when the father met him, he fell on his neck. And you almost think like he's karate chopping him or something. No, 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 no. It's just a warm embrace around the head. You know, he fell on his neck, continuing on, and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And Paul gets on the ship and starts sailing towards Jerusalem. Well, that's it for Acts chapter 20. And let me leave you with this question. I'm going to answer the question, but I just want you to think about it. (laughs) How did the Ephesians do with the warnings that Paul gave them? I mean, look, we got sort of a heavy section here this morning, right? Paul's grabbing these guys by the shoulders and say, wake up. Watch out. Do your work. Danger's on the outside. Danger's on the inside. Trouble ahead. How did they do with these warnings? Well, it was sort of a mixed bag. Look, the Ephesian church had lots of blessings. You should think about all the the great people that God called to serve at that church. How about this for an all-star ministry team? The Apostle Paul, for three years, the Apostle Paul, Aquila and Priscilla, Apollos, Timothy, and the Apostle John. That's your ministry team. Now, not necessarily all at once, but over the years. Wow, what a privileged church. But we find something that later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus writes a letter. He dictates a letter to this church in Ephesus. And what does he have to say to them? Well, first of all, he praises them a lot. They were doing so many things right. They had hard work for the kingdom of God. They endured through difficult times. They dealt with those who were evil. They dealt with false doctrines and false apostles. And they didn't give up when they were weary. The church in Ephesus was doing so many things right. You might stand back and say, yes, they listened to Paul. But then you remember what Jesus said to them in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, where he said, you've left your first love. You've left it. You don't love me the way you used to, Jesus said to them. You don't love one another the way that you used to. And Jesus said, this was a deal breaker. Because you've left your first love, you are in danger of me withdrawing my presence from your congregation. You've got to get that first love back. It just sort of makes me think it. That even though they had this danger of losing their first love, they did good on guarding against false doctrine. Listen, it may very well be that in the Ephesian church, in their zeal to fight against false doctrine, which they seem to do very well, that they left their first love for Jesus and their first love for one another behind. 
Isn't it a great illustration of the principle? That the devil doesn't care which side of the boat we fall out on just as long as we're in the boat, we're in the water and not in the boat. Push you out on the side of false doctrine? Great. He'll push you out on that side. Push you out on the side of too little love and a harsh and condemning attitude towards other people? As long as you're in the water, he doesn't care. And this may very well be what the Ephesian church did. Friends, God helping us We'll walk that middle line, right? God helping us will be on the watch against false doctrines and difficulties both from the outside and from the inside. But we'll do it all keeping love in its great proper first place among us because that's what Jesus died on the cross and purchased this church to do. It belongs to him. Father in heaven, Lord, I... Instead of praying for the congregation now, Lord, I just want to pray for myself and pray that you help me and the other pastors and leaders in this congregation to serve you and to serve these people well. I pray that you'd help us to take to heart, Lord, the warnings to the Ephesian church, not only the warnings to watch out, but, Lord, the the warnings to never leave their first love. Jesus seems like such a big order, but we believe that you helping us, it can be done. And Jesus, I pray for a special help from you to be able to preach these precious people whom you have purchased with your own blood that I would bring to them the whole counsel of God's word. That I wouldn't just preach on favorite topics or hobby horse themes but rather, Lord, in a way that gives you honor and glory as someone who teaches your whole counsel. And so, Jesus, we look to you. You purchased this congregation with your own blood. And, Lord, we rest in that. We rejoice in that. Help us to lead this congregation in a way that brings honor to you as one who purchased it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.